0: Well, good morning. As you're uh, settling back in here, uh, next Sunday, the day after Christmas, I'm going to have a special Christmas message, but this Sunday, we're in Second Peter. We're going to be in chapter 2, if you want to turn there. And as you're turning there, just maybe to help get our minds into the topic for this morning, let me ask you this. How many of you are animal lovers Animal lovers? Yeah, most. My family and I are too. It, I mean, I just think it's hard not to be when you see God's amazing creation and you observe it. it it's just awesome. And so uh, take a look at this little guy here. Yeah, isn't that the cutest thing? This is the Baron. The Baron was one of our favorite little pets. And we didn't have, actually, we found him abandoned at our church one Sunday morning. Or I think we were going to play volleyball midweek. And, and nobody claimed him. And so he became our pet. And uh, we didn't have any kids at the time. So he was like our, our first child. And he would go everywhere with us. He'd fly around the country in the back of our little airplane, hence the name, The Baron. And so here, here's a flashback for you. <laughs> This is about 1989, the Baron and still didn't have any kids, and we're hiking with our friends in the Jemez Mountains in New Mexico. We put his little bandana on, and we'd take him all around. And then later, when our kids were born, he was just an amazing family dog. I remember him laying on the floor. We could lay an infant next to him. This dog was like as soft and fluffy as a teddy bear and smart as a whip. We just loved him. He was like God's little special gift to us. Um, He lived to be 15 years old and passed away just before we moved to Illinois in 2001. So here's my memorial to the baron. We we never replaced him, partly because of some allergies in the family, but also because it would be hard to top the baron. (laughs) It really would. But who knows, maybe someday we'll have a grand dog. And I can show you pictures of him to go along with my new grandson. So as amazing as animals are, they're not the same as humans. Animals are made by God, but they're not made in the image of God. And so as a result, animals do not have a soul. Only humans have a soul. Um, You know what, John? I think I skipped something there. We'll go back. There we go. Animals are made by God. They're not made in the image of God. They don't have a soul, and as a result, they don't have God's moral law written upon their heart. And so, as a result, some of the things animals do when a penguin, one of my favorite animals, goes and steals rocks from his neighbor's nest, He's not guilty of stealing. He's not guilty of the sin of stealing. Or when, say, um, a tomcat sleeps around. He's not guilty of fornication or adultery. Or when a black widow kills its mate and eats it. (laughs) That spider is not guilty of murder. Because God hasn't given his moral law to spiders. So while animals are made by God, they're not made in the image of God, they're not on par with humans, as wonderful as they are. They're not responsible like we are for choices that we make. So with these things in mind, the title of the message this morning is Appealing to Animal Instinct. And we're going to be in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 through 22. And John, if you could bring the monitor in the back. There you go. Thank you. That's helpful. Uh, And the outline has two parts. First, the immoral conduct. We're going to see in verses 10 through 16. And then secondly, the impending consequence in verses 17 through 20. So, We saw last time in the first part of chapter two that it was speaking all about judgment and rescue. And it was summed up in one verse, verse nine, which comes right before our text. So let's start in verse nine and read that along with the first half of our text and then we'll jump into it. So beginning in verse nine. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials, and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desires of the sinful nature and despise authority. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, Do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They're blots and blemishes, reveling in in their pleasures while they feast with you. With their eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Well, I want to look first at, you see it all throughout this passage, the immoral conduct. In verses 10 through 16 in particular. And you heard this group is talking about a group of people. Verses 10, 12, 17 make reference to these men. These men. And then many other verses refer to them again and again as they. It says they are brute beasts. They will be paid back. They are like blots and blemishes. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. They, they, they. Who are they? Well, to answer that question, we have to back up to verse 1 in chapter 2. And it says that there are false teachers who are among you. Verse 1 says, there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord. And then in verse 2, it says that many will follow them. So when it speaks of they in this passage, it's speaking of false teachers and the many who will follow them. So that's who they are. What are they doing? Well, that's what the remainder of this chapter speaks to. But it actually summarizes what they're doing right up front. We see it in uh, verse 10, and it falls into two categories. It says they... Follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature, and they despise authority. Those two categories. That's what these false teachers and their followers are doing. So first, they follow the corrupt desires of the sinful nature. We want to look at that one first. We're going to see that this refers almost exclusively to sexual sin in this text. And in fact, that's what the first half of chapter two was all about. When it gave three examples of God's harsh judgment, they were all related to sexual sin. Uh, Example number one in verse four, the angels, when they sinned, they cohabitated with human women in a sexual way, and God judged them. And then the second example, the flood. Scripture implies that that was part of the fallout from the incident with the angels, and then example number three, in verse six, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were all about sexual and homosexual sin. And so this is the primary focus of the passage, both before our text and going forward. It's about, uh, it's about corrupt desire of the sinful nature in a sexual sense. And so... That's that's what they're doing in the first category. But then the second category is that they despise authority, it says. And it's interesting because the Greek word for authority is a word that's often used of the Lord. It could have been translated, they despise the Lord. They despise authority. Yet the context suggests here it's talking about civil and government authority. But their, their, their rebellion isn't limited to just that. Um, in verse one, it says that they are even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. So in other words, they're unwilling to submit their lives to the authority of Jesus Christ. And then if we look ahead, in verse 10, it says bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings, probably referring to fallen angels. So they have no respect for spiritual authority either. So here's here's a question for you. If people defy the authority of God, of spiritual beings, and of government and civil authority, who does that make the number one authority in their lives? Themselves. Bingo. Themselves. They answer to no one but themselves. And what does that free them up to do? Anything they want. Anything they want. One of the characteristics of our of our fallen nature, and we have to remember this, our sin nature just has this strong desire for self-legislation. We don't want anybody else telling us what to do. We don't want anybody else telling us what's right or wrong. We want to determine that for ourselves. That's part of our sinfulness. We want complete autonomy. And I believe this is what is the driving force behind the atheist agenda. Follow me on this. If people can can deny the creator, then they can deny a purpose for the creation. And they can deny any rules for the creatures. See that? I think this is a driving force behind atheism because then the people become their own authority. They make the rules. They decide what's right and wrong and they do whatever they want to do. Remember the words of Fyodor Dostoevsky. He said this, I love this quote, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. An ungodly world Believes that and embraces that. So these false teachers and their followers are following the corrupt desire, the sinful nature, and they despise authority. That's what it says up front they do. Now, I want to expand our definition of false teachers a little bit. Don't think solely of preachers in the pulpit, okay? There, There are certainly false teachers in the pulpit, but let's go beyond that. Remember, these false teachers are masters of disguise and they've slipped in among you. I was was thinking this week, you know, the Bible doesn't describe them as wolves in shepherds' clothing. It describes them as wolves in sheep's clothing. So they're not just preachers, I don't believe. Let me give you an example. Uh, Psalm 24 declares that God is the Lord of all creation. And Colossians 1 says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So when public or private schools teach evolution, the idea that man came about apart from any work of God, what are they doing? They're denying the lordship of Jesus Christ. They're being false teachers. Someone might say, but, but, but Paul, my son's science teacher is a Christian, he goes to the Methodist church or the Presbyterian church or one of those big churches down on Randall Road, he's a Christian. How could he be a false teacher? Well, if he's subtly introducing heresies that deny the sovereign Lord, then he is a false teacher. My son just finished taking a comparative religions class at ECC, and the professor says he's part of the Lutheran Church, and that man spews heresy all over the place. He's a false teacher. For too long, I think Christian parents have supposed that their kids can absorb this kind of teaching all week long without having an impact on them spiritually because it'll be remedied when they all go to church together on Sunday. How's that working for us as a society? Not very well. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this I'm one behind. Here's a, here's a quote from Martin Luther. He said, I am afraid that the schools were proved to be the very gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures and engraving them in the hearts of the youth. How's that for a chilling quote and one that's proving to be spot on? So is it any surprise that we're, quote unquote, losing the country morally? but Paul, you're not suggesting that the harmless theory of evolution being taught is responsible for all the moral decay and the sexual immorality that we see around us, are we? Let me me read you Romans chapter 1, and you decide for yourself. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised, amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another "'Men committed indecent acts with other men "'and received in themselves the due penalty "'for their perversion. "'Furthermore,' it goes on, (laughs) "'as if that wasn't enough. "'Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile "'to retain the knowledge of God, "'he gave them over to a depraved mind "'to do what ought not to be done, "'they become filled with every kind of wickedness, "'evil, greed, and depravity. they are full of envy.' Murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That reads like the, the headlines in the paper, doesn't it? I wish I would have had time to just match up each one of those categories with the few headlines In our newspapers. And where did it all begin? By denying the sovereign Lord who created all things. That's where it started. And the result hasn't, it's been devolution, a downward spiral morally of our society. That's, That's where we find ourselves today. Now, verse 11, it elaborates on on these men and their arrogance. It says, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. That's kind of an unusual passage, but Jude 9 and 10 explains it. The archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, he wouldn't even dare bring an accusation directly against the devil. He said, the Lord rebuke you. He had respect, the archangel, for the devil. It says, Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand. And verse 12, but these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. To blaspheme means to denigrate God. In other words, showing contempt for his name, his character, his work. Isn't that what our society is doing? They're blaspheming. And it says in verse 12, they're like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like beasts, they too will perish. This verse verse equates the behavior of these men, note that, the behavior of these men with that of animals. Not saying they're animals, but they're acting like animals, brute beasts, Creatures of mere instinct. Jude 10 says that they are like unreasoning animals. Today people say things like, oh, you party animal, you, as if that's a compliment. (laughs) It shouldn't be. There was a man who wrote a letter to the, to the syndicated columnist, Pauline Phillips. She went by the pen name Abigail Van Buren, Dear Abby. I love, this is one of my favorite Dear Abbeys ever. He wrote, Dear Abby, I'm having an affair with two different women. I can't marry both. Please tell me what to do. But don't give me any of that morality stuff. Abby's response was classic. She said, dear sir, the only thing that separates us from the animals is morality. Please write to a veterinarian. (laughs) She nailed it, didn't she? Remember that I said if people can deny the creator, they can deny the purpose for the creation and they can deny the rules for the creatures. Well now that evolution is a generally accepted explanation of origins, what's being taught in almost every school, it can be used to rationalize sexual immorality. You'll find articles like these in Forbes magazine. Evolution may explain why men are more likely to cheat. Or the Pacific Standard, why they stray, the evolutionary advantages of infidelity. Or Time Magazine came in with this beauty. Infidelity, it may be in our genes. And you see the broken wedding ring in their graphic. These, these studies, these, these articles, are all reporting on studies that say things like this. Mating with multiple partners increases the genetic diversity of the offspring and the odds that at least some will survive regardless of changing environmental conditions. So in other words, sexual promiscuity is just a natural biological response. We can't help it. It's in our genes. It even serves to further our species. How convenient for sinful beings. That's some of the conduct. Verse 13 says this. It says, they will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. We'll talk more about God's judgment in a minute. But 13 continues with more details of their behavior. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. Their blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. In general... People tend to do their evil deeds under the cover of darkness in general. You think of like nightclubs or nightlife. You know, you don't see dayclubs and daylife going on. Not like that kind. They can hide. Their licentious activities can be hidden in darkness where they feel more incognito. But as people become more and more debased in their thinking like this passage is talking about, they no longer feel a need to hide their behavior. In fact, they're proud of it. They flaunt it. They carouse in public, openly. That's how bold and arrogant they have become. Now, you might think right away of like a pride parade or something called the Folsom Street Fair, broad daylight. But what about other events that have become more culturally acceptable by the masses? Things like Mardi Gras? What about spring break? Is there any difference there? It's sexuality, it might not be so much homosexuality but it's sexuality. I actually, months ago I found a passage when I was reading through the Bible in Habakkuk that I think speaks directly to spring break and I wrote it down, tucked it away Here it is, spring break in Habakkuk. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbors, pouring it from the wineskins till they are drunk so that they can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. That's God's judgment against such things. When you see the word woe, That speaks of God's divine judgment. So verse 14, it goes on. Their eyes are full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. Eyes full of adultery. That means that every, for the man, every female they see is a potential conquest, a potential adulteress. That's how they look at them. That's, That's how lustful they have become. It's all they think about. They're that out of control. It says they seduce the unstable. Now somebody reading this in the first century would know exactly what Peter is talking about here. It's a fishing term. To seduce means to lure with bait, to lure them in so they can hook them, catch them. Now, there's different ways that people can lure someone in in this day and age. The way they talk, the way they act, alcohol. Positioning themselves in a position of authority where they can manipulate somebody else. How much have we seen that recently? In schools, in Hollywood, with managers in business. Seducing people, luring them in as with bait. And you'll see the same term again in verse 18. Um, How did they get to this point where their eyes are just filled with adultery? Where everything they look at is an object of adultery? Well, there's a second comparison that's almost hidden in the English language, and especially in the NIV translation. It says they are experts in greed. That doesn't even begin to capture it. The New King James Version, I think, says it better. It says, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. This training, it's a clear reference to the athletic training as in the games. So they had, in alternating years, the Corinth games and the games in Olympia. It was the ancient Olympics. And a person doesn't just show up and run in the Olympics one day. They go into a very disciplined, regimented, process of training. It's it's all they do. They think about it all the time. They have this goal in mind, winning the prize, and their entire life is ordered around their diet, their exercise, their training. It's all set toward achieving this goal, this prize. Well, in the same way, a person doesn't just wake up one morning and find that they're suddenly an adulteress, suddenly consumed with lust, No, they begin filling their mind with these things first and filling their eyes and feasting on this, everything. They order their life. It's all they think about after a little while and then guess what? Next thing you know, they're an adulteress. They're fornicators repeatedly. It's become a habit. It's become a way of life. They've been training and conditioning in their minds for a long time. Now, now, they, they probably also no doubt had some people coaching them, luring them, and a lot of people cheering them on too, just like the athletes. So this is how we get to this point, and I think that's what Peter is alluding to. But I think there's another parallel to the ancient games that he draws on, and it's this. It's a well-known fact that the competitors, all men, would practice and run naked. They did. They didn't want anything to hinder them. And so this word for train is like gymnasio. It's where we get gymnasium. It actually means to run naked. Well, look what he's saying. He says you're running naked, not, not chasing after the prize in a race. You're chasing after adulterous practices, sensual desires. You're running naked in a different sense. That's, that's what I think Peter is saying here. And it was to win over the hearts of the unstable, he says. Now, The Apostle Paul presents the antithesis, the polar opposite of this whole idea in 1 Timothy 4, 7. He says this, train yourselves to be godly. Train yourselves to be godly. In other words, fill your hearts and minds with the thoughts of God and his truth and his goals for your life and run hard after that. You can think of it like cross-training. Training Training in the way of the cross, the gospel, the things of the Lord, So every morning when you wake up, you have a choice as to what kind of training you're going to do. I have a choice as to what kind of training I'm going to do. I can train in covetous practices, or I can train in godliness. We need to run after the things of God, not the things of the flesh, Galatians says. So both of these activities begin with how we fill our minds, what we're thinking about. It continues in verse 15. They left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Balaam was a wicked prophet. He wasn't a false prophet. God kept him from speaking a curse on the Israelites. See, the king, the Moabite king, Balak, wanted him to curse the Israelites. And he was going to do it. He was offered money to curse the Israelites. But when he stood up to do well, when he was on his way there, God stopped him in his tracks by his donkey. And God put words in his donkey's mouth to change his mind. Now, I think this is fascinating. Here's Balaam acting like a, donkey, an animal, and God uses a donkey to speak to him like a human. Imagine, you're going down a path towards sin and some hog runs out in the middle of the road and turns and looks at you and says, and you call me a pig? (laughs) Look at what you're doing. Can you imagine? I think that would get your attention, wouldn't it? God used an animal to speak to him, but Balaam was so set on collecting his money, that when he couldn't curse the Israelites directly, he found a workaround. He worked with Balak, the, the, the Moabite king, and he told him how he could get the Israelites to bring curses upon themselves by enticing them with prostitutes and idolatry, and he collected his money for doing that. So that's what's referred to here when it says the wages of wickedness in verse 15. I heard about a farmer who lived in the Irish countryside all by himself, except for his little dog, who he loved dearly. He wasn't the baron. He wasn't that cute. But one day his dog died. And so he went into town to the parish priest and said, you know, my dog died. Do you think you could conduct a mass for him there at the church? And the parish priest said, no, I'm sorry, we can't have a mass for an animal in the church, but there is a new denomination down the road, and who knows what they teach, they might be able to take care of you, I recommend you go there. And so the farmer thanked him, he says, I'll do that right away, and he says, and by the way, do you think 50,000 is enough to donate for such a service? And the priest looked at him and said, you didn't tell me he was a Catholic dog, See, money has a way of kind of distorting our judgment, doesn't it? Well, no, I'm not picking on Catholics. But it does distort our values and our judgment. And these false teachers were full of greed. And it says they were following the way of Balaam. Verse 16 says, Balaam was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, as we talked about. So this is some of the immoral conduct that was going on with these false teachers and the many who follow them. Many. Let's let's look at the second part, then the impending consequences in verse 17 through 22. It says, these men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit. And a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Well, these people are described as springs without water and mists or clouds blown by a storm. And you have to remember that the the Middle East is a desert and water was a precious commodity. They were dependent upon it for survival. And so springs without water... And mist, clouds blown by a storm. See, they promise refreshment, water. They promise refreshment and life. But they can't deliver. They don't deliver. So Peter uses these to show the worthlessness of the message of these false prophets, these false teachers. But contrast that to what Jesus said. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. These false teachers were leading people away from Jesus. And they're leading them down a path of destruction with promises of refreshment and life that they can't deliver on. Now, to make this just a little more real, Let's just change out a word or two. Let's take out the word false teachers and let's pick on Hollywood. How about this? Hollywood is leading people away from Jesus and down a path of destruction with promises of refreshment in life that they can't deliver on. Is that a true statement? I think it is. They're serving up their message day in and day out. Yet, they themselves are slaves of depravity. How many burned out, dried up Hollywood elites have you seen at the end of their career when they're just totally empty? They have nothing but emptiness and they haven't even had the full judgment of God yet. They can't deliver on the promise that they offer. Do this, it'll refresh you, it'll bring you life, it'll set you free. No, it'll make you a slave to depravity. Verse 16 says, blackest darkness is reserved for them. Now, since God is light, then an appropriate metaphor for hell would be blackest darkness, the complete absence of God. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light, it, it signifies Righteousness, illumination, direction, revelation—that's light. Yet John three nineteen says, "This is the verdict: Light has come into the world. We're, we're celebrating it with Christmas. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their their deeds were evil. Those who reject the Lord's the lordship." of Jesus Christ, will spend an eternity in what it describes as the blackest darkness. That's a chilling thought, the blackest darkness. Some people say, I'm afraid of the dark. You know, when it comes to spiritual darkness, you should be. Are you afraid of spiritual darkness or just when somebody turns the lights out? We should be terrified of spiritual darkness. We should have nothing to do with it. We shouldn't play around in it. We shouldn't hang out with people who promote it, who revel in it. Verse 18. For they mouth empty boastful words and by appealing to the lustful desires of human nature. There it is. That's appealing to their animal instincts. The lustful desires of sinful human nature. They entice people. They lure them with bait. They entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. One of the greatest sins a person could ever commit is to lead someone else into sin. Think about that. Remember what Jesus said? Matthew 18, he said, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come, but woe to the man through whom they come. Woe, again, God's divine judgment. You don't want to be on the receiving end of God's woe. The last three severest judgments in the book of Revelation are called the woe judgments because the angel says, woe, 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 because of the three final judgments that are coming. Those who practice sexual immorality, such as adultery, fornication, revelry, they're baiting others, they're leading them into sin. And they stand to face the severest judgment. Whoa, whoa. Now, I'm not minimizing the depths of God's forgiveness. I'm not. But what I'm doing is underscoring, underscoring the magnitude of God's holiness and the enormity of sin's ugliness. Because see, as believers, evangelicals, we can become so comfortable with God's forgiveness that we can become peddlers of what some call cheap grace. Hey, don't worry about it. Just do it. God will forgive you. Cheap grace. But even for those who are in Christ, the woe judgments that you and I deserve were poured out on Jesus instead. Our forgiveness wasn't free for him. It cost him everything. It's a free gift to us. It cost him everything. And so he calls us to repent and walk in holiness. Don't take lightly the righteousness of God or the wickedness of sin. Verse 19, they promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. For a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. Again, these these are empty promises. They're promising them freedom, think about it. Sexual liberation promises freedom. You're free to do whatever you want, it's your body. But just like drugs and alcohol, once it gets a hold of you and draws you in, it doesn't let go. You're enslaved by it, you can't stop. You need more and more and more just to feel the same level of satisfaction. And soon you become a slave. And once it has you locked up, it begins destroying your family, your faith, your future, your relationship with the Lord. It takes you totally captive. It doesn't doesn't deliver on its promise of freedom. In the 1950s, about 5% of teenagers were sexually active. But then the 60s and 70s came. What was that? The free love movement. Sexual liberation, you're free. We don't have to live by these rules anymore. Darwin, he's the guy. We don't have to follow these archaic rules of some make-believe creator. And so what was the result of this newfound freedom? Well, today, 70% of teenage girls and 80% of teenage boys are sexually active. And look at the consequences, the result of this freedom. You can see it in this chart, more than 40% of of children in the United States are being born to unwed mothers today. And those those statistics range from 29% to over 72% depending on race. Guys, over 40% of kids are being born to unwed mothers. And no, contraception and abortion are not the answer to this problem. If you're pro-choice, choose not to conceive. How's that? (laughs) There's a choice you can make. Take a look at the number of children whose parents divorce each year. It's gone up by over 500% in the same period of time. Today, well over a million children are subjected to a broken home every single year in the United States. And on top of that, poverty is six times more likely in single parent homes so 40% plus of those kids have a six times greater likelihood that they will be they will grow up in poverty. But there's a new push in the last 10 years. It's not free love so much as homosexual love. There's a growing number of people in the Christian community who see homosexuality is morally acceptable if It's in the context of a loving, monogamous relationship. A number of Christian denominations will perform same-sex marriages and even ordain practicing gay pastors, men and women. How could anyone oppose two people who love each other, right? After all, love is the very essence of Christianity. If you deny these people their opportunity to love each other, you're a hateful bigot. You're not loving. That's what they say. Well, listen to the words of Jude 4. I came across this a few months ago, too, and tucked it away in my later file. It says this. It, it applies to this very notion of free love and homosexual love. It says, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago, has secretly slipped in among you. That's a false teachers, And it says... They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our sovereign and Lord. They exchange, they they take the grace of God and they use it as a license for immorality. That's exactly what's happening here. Redefine love. It's okay, they're monogamous, they love each other. It's immorality couched as Christian freedom under the guise of the grace of God. Christian freedom can never mean a license to sin. And we don't get to decide what's sin and what's not. God is the only righteous one. He is the one that decides what is sin and what is not. He sets the moral standard of righteousness. Another doctrine that we're seeing taught in our society is one of tolerance. How much do we hear that? You do what you want and I'll do what I want. In other words, I'll decide for myself what's right and wrong. Tolerance is not a virtue when it's tolerance of sin within the church. It is not. Listen to what Jesus wrote to a church in Revelation 2.20. Jesus said, nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. What does she do? You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. False teachers exchange, they change the grace of God into a license for immorality. Jesus chided the church. Tolerance is not a virtue when it's tolerance for sin in the church. And then we're issued a final warning in verses 20 through 22. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off in the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. I wish there was more time to develop this. I do. But in a nutshell, God holds us accountable for the truth that we have received. That's what he's saying here. Jesus said this of an ungodly world. He said, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. See, when somebody hears the words of truth and willfully turns back to a life of sin and ungodliness, there's judgment in store. It speaks of a a dog returning to its own vomit or a sow going back to wallowing in the mud. I... Don't think it's speaking of someone who's been saved, but I think it's speaking of someone who's moving in the direction of salvation and turns back. They maybe started reading the Bible. They were motivated to go to a church. They heard the they heard of God's love and his grace and his forgiveness and of his holiness and sin's wickedness. But then the enemy did something. The enemy came along and enticed them maybe with a love interest that was more attractive than any before. Now, right at that moment, they should think, wait a minute. Something's going on here. First of all, what would this person see in me? But here's this temptation. And you know what? They go, okay, godliness, I'm not saved yet. Godliness, or going back to this ungodly life, and they turn around and they go back because they were enticed, they were deceived, they turn back, they go back to wallowing in the mud. Well, false teachers are everywhere. I hope you get that point. It's not just preachers in the pulpit. They're everywhere. They're in our music lyrics, they're in our schools, they're in our culture. They're everywhere everywhere. And they appeal to the lustful desires of the sinful nature. That's what this passage says. And the point of this passage is not to point a finger at the world and say, look at how bad they are. It's to point a finger at ourselves and say, look at how vulnerable we are. This is a warning to you and to me. Look how vulnerable we are and think about how much we've already conformed to the pattern of this world, Romans 12. That's the point of this passage. One of the best ways, I think, to counter the disgusting attacks of the enemy is to know the truth. Knowing the truth in regard to good and evil so that we can see through the deception. Now I'm a visual learner. Let me give you a picture to illustrate this. It's a little bit graphic, but you know, on the surface, something can look beautiful and enticing. But what we need to learn to do is to see through the deception. This is what we need to see. What's behind that? Seriously, what is behind that? Now, you know I like playing with PowerPoint, so. (laughs) You might never look at Miley Cyrus the same way again, right? But women, this could be George Clooney. It could be, you know, someone like that that you find attractive you got to see through the deception. And, And I hope you never do look at Miley Cyrus the same way again. That's the whole point of this illustration, is that you see through this enticement with these false promises, empty promises that cannot deliver, that will only deliver destruction, and that you follow the way of truth and righteousness. Imagine kissing that. Just keep that in your mind when you're tempted to lust. I really want you to think, and I need to think about that. It shouldn't be beautiful to us. It's ugly. It's disgusting to the Lord. So, the enemy me has been quite successful, I think, at getting the church to conform to the patterns of this world. Sexual sin is rampant in the church. That's what this warning is for, it's for the church. Many have become a slave to it. So I don't think we need an altar call so much as a purity call, a purity call to think about our lives, to consider this week, how have I conformed to the pattern of this world, especially in this area of sexual immorality? Where have I given in? Where has it just become so normal that I don't even think about it? God, show me my sin. And then we need to repent. We need to admit, confess it. We need to ask God's forgiveness. We need to turn around and go the other way. We need to ask God for the power to live for righteousness. See, every morning we wake up, we can run we can train for ungodliness or we can train for godliness. We can walk in the flesh or we can walk in the spirit. And this, this verse, this passage, stands as a warning to us. So let's confess our sins to the Lord and let him renew our mind through his, the truth of his word. Would you pray with me? God, help us. Help us the church, your children, because we're all guilty of sexual sin of one kind or another. We're all equal in that regard, and we're deserving of your judgment and your wrath. We're deserving of the darkest, blackest darkness. And God, I thank you that you're gracious and you're compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Rather than sending calamity, you sent your son, And we're celebrating that this week, God. You made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, forgive us for our sin. Cleanse us. Fill us with grace and truth that we might rightly take your message of of love and deliverance and hope to a world that so desperately needs it. God, help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.